Welcome to the Future of Ground Transportation podcast, where we discuss the exciting innovations that lie ahead for organizational ground transportation. Each episode, we cover topics tailored to those resolving transportation-related challenges and provide tips, tools, and trends that will inspire you to stay ahead of the curve. And now, here's your host, Daniel Perez. Welcome to the future of ground transportation. Today, we have a legend in the ground transportation sector, Mr. Robert Alexander, CEO of RMA Worldwide Chauffeur Services. Robert, welcome to the show. How are you doing tonight? Thank you, Daniel. Thank you very much. Uh, it's nice to be welcome and it's nice to be here. I appreciate you uh, including me in your, your podcast. It's an honor as well. <laughs> it, is, it is an honor, especially with someone like you that would much respect you're an honor and an, I mean, you're a veteran and with so much wisdom and knowledge in this industry. So I'm looking forward to this interview. So with that being said, Robert, tell us a little bit about how you guys started in the transportation sector for how long you've been doing. And I know you've been the CEO for the last 35 years, but how did you get started? Okay. Well, I'll give you my, my reader's digest uh, version, so to speak. Uh, before I grew up in, in Bethesda, Maryland and uh, before my senior year of college, a lady in my neighborhood asked me to take her and her dog to the vet. I said, sure. She asked me to run some errands for her. I said, sure. It was a great way to make a few extra dollars. She told the other neighbors about it. So they'd call and I'd run their errands and, and, and to graduate. So I did that for the summer. End of the summer, I went to graduate. I had to write a senior thesis. I went to a small liberal arts school called Washington College in Chestertown, Maryland. And I wrote a paper on how America had changed from an industrial to a service economy. And it was basically a business plan for a company called Aaron's, E-R-R-A-N-D-S, Aaron's Plus Inc. And so I developed the plan and, and I got a, uh, it was in May of 88, I graduated from college and I got a new car from graduation and it was a 1988 stop. So I said, you know, I'm going to give this business a try. I started in my parents' basement, Bethesda, and uh, I was running the errands and driving senior citizens around and, and it literally should have been called anything for a buck because that's what I was doing. <laughs> anything, you know, I had no idea what I was doing and learning every day as I went. And then one day I put a flyer into the right car and this guy to be co-chairman of, of a national uh, commercial real estate company. And he said, will you take me to the train station? And I said, sure. And he said, next day, you know, come back, take me to the airport. And he said, we put a phone in the car. And that was a big deal back then. I was driving this black sob here. Manual transmissions were crying out loud. And, and he started telling friends about me in his office. And I learned very quickly the corporate sector had, you know, money to spend where with the senior citizens I was running into kind of post depression age thinking where, you know, it saved their money. And I think I was charging like, you know, $12 an hour for senior citizens. It's $12 an hour. At 50. You know, Robert, real, real quick, sorry. How old were you back then when you first started? I graduated, uh, I was like 22. You know, I graduated in 88, and so, yeah, they're about, yeah, born in 65, so. Um, so, yeah, I was just getting going, and, 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 and I was very fortunate. I'm the youngest of five kids, and my parents were very, very supportive uh, in that, you know, I lived at home. The refrigerator was always full, you know, and so it, I could really dive headfirst into it, and if it worked out, great. If it didn't, then I could go and say, I did the books marketing. Please, please, you know, give me a job. And my family is supportive, and, and I have some, you know, some people in my family that, that have been successful 
So I was able to call and get good advice. You know, whenever people tell me, you know, the things you've done, I can, you know, I say, well, I've got a lot, a lot, a long list of things not to do because you know, the, along the way, you bump your head plenty, right? So, yeah. So you learn by trial and error, and so, it's just it's just been a great, great ride since then. No, no pun intended, right? Yeah, I love it. I love it. So, for context too, I started my business right from my basement as well as, as in my family's uh, living room. So I totally appreciate uh, how RMA got started and and seeing where it is right now. So at a high level, for all the listeners, we have transit transit authorities, we have trans, transportation companies that are part of the audience in in truck. Uh, truck uh truck operators as well give us a high level where our mate is now how many buses you operate how many vehicles how many states do you operate and so forth well we have offices now um in in boston new york new jersey philly a slight one um rockville prince george's county richmond houston and austin and then we have a global network we have company-owned fleets, and, and those are all the states we have. We have uh, company-owned fleets, and then the rest we have partnerships, the global network, which I'm, I know you're familiar with, and, and others hopefully were in this space are, are familiar with. And that's kind of one of the biggest, fastest-growing parts of our business. And then we've got you now a whole motor coach division, uh, where I was fortunate. I bought a motor coach company and a company from a private equity company, all within about three weeks of the pandemic. Motor push company first, and then I bought a large company two weeks before the pandemic. It was brilliant. It was two weeks before the pandemic. So we're going to dive right into the stories. <laughs> so how many vehicles How many vehicles in total currently? Do we have currently? I don't even know. I try not to know. I think about revenue. We about two things, revenue, expense, and profitability. Uh, vehicles are a necessary evil. But, you know, we're, I, 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 do, I don't even know. I think they're probably 500 or something like that right now, give or take. Uh, I mean, between motor coaches and and minis and sedans and SUVs, and then we've got you know like 100 partners in New York we use. So we've got we've got. I mean, when I, when I took over the company in New Jersey, I think they had 600 vehicles alone. And at the time, we had done an acquisition in DC, and we ordered about 300 vehicles. So I think we were close to like a thousand. And then the pandemic. I'm kind of jumping ahead here, but the pandemic came and and we couldn't get rid of assets quick enough. Because it was a real burden, which you know anybody who went through the pandemic certainly certainly knows. Yeah, a lot. And um, now we're fortunate; it's coming back with a vengeance and and managing it and get. And now we can buy more vehicles because they're now available once again. Yeah, so you can back on top. So I know I jumped around a little bit here. I know that's why. So, so Robert, is it fair to say that with the acquisition of Addison Lee, are you guys one of the top? 10 largest companies in, in the U.S. in the ground transportation sector or one of the top five? I think we're lower than that. I think if you go by revenue, I think we're a little, I think, you know, I, I don't, you know, again, I, I wouldn't, I don't, I don't feel the need to beat my chest. I feel the need to be the best at what we do. Is that we provide the best experience for our chauffeurs and for, our, for, our, for the people on Fort Chapter to work with. I think, you know, if you argue revenue or whatever, we're the Top three, without a doubt. I mean, I you know, we've got you know, we're fortunate we've got good good competitors that make us uh, come to work every day and try and do it better than we <laughs> it, that better than the day before is what it is. I, I yeah. think. You know. And as a as a talking of appreciation, 
um, and probably inspiration for all the listeners. Are you open to share the the top sales revenues just so everybody could get a, a context of how much you're doing in sales revenues? This show will be around a hundred million. This, yeah. awesome. There you go. I mean, give or give, give, give or take. Again, I mean, I'm not. I don't think I need to go to exact because I don't think it's important. And I use that contextual contextual for for COVID. Correct. So, so Robert, at a high level, we were not there two years ago. So, at a high level, with all the turbulence that the industry have experienced in the last two or three years, primarily with the pandemic, what were your biggest takes away from from the pandemic, especially in the middle of the storm, and then after the storm, how does it look now? And especially, you know, you mentioned you acquired this company right two three weeks before the pandemic. You know, what What were the biggest lessons, right? Because they say that smart people learn from their mistakes, but wise people learn from other people's mistakes. So I would love to, and, and some and other people's experiences. So I would love to learn, you know, what was your biggest takeaways from, from those experiences? There were, I mean, there were so many, so, so many. I mean, I think, you know, the, the biggest takeaway was, you know, just to be to be lean now and and be cautious as to what what you do and how you do it and make sure that everything touch aligns with what you're trying to achieve. Um, but my biggest take, takeaway now from it all, um, and I don't think there's ever a substitute for it, and that's intellectual talent. I think whoever has the best intellectual talent wins. Um, you know, I think Warren, I think it was Jack Welch who said, you know, we don't want to hire a bunch of smart people so they can tell us, so we can tell them what to do. We want to hire a bunch of smart people so they can tell us what to do. Um, and so, so the, the point is, is that, you know, I'm very fortunate. I'm surrounded by a lot of great people and we're always looking to expand our talent and to improve our talent. Um, so you still got me real on our sales because I know they're, they're north of what I said, but I don't think that that's, that's your main to the conversation, what we do, because I don't want, because it doesn't matter if, if you have a five car company and you're, and you're watching this or you, you have a, a 600, if you're, if you're working hard and making a difference to the people you work with and to your clients and, and building something you're proud of, I think that's more important. And for me, scale is, is it keeps me interested. Otherwise I kind of get bored and I get antsy and then we do acquisitions or we grow up. That's what's interesting to me. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it should be interesting to everybody. Some people don't like managing too many other people. Some people don't like giving up control. And I think it's finding your own personal sweet spot and gravitating towards that. Um, because, you know, we'll see. I'm going to get the wrap on more money, more problems, right? So, <laughs> well, yeah, something. And yeah, thank you, Robert. And then at the same time, when you mentioned talent, what would you say were the the three most important components of either keeping them motivate them engage and focus during the pandemic and post pandemic like what was your biggest le lessons with talent i know for example for me personally we had a furlough of about 100 drivers uh almost have so right now we have about 240 drivers in total or 240 employees and we had a furlough at a hundred and, and, and honestly, like what I learned is that I should have done it earlier and I waited, right? Because as a CEO, I always say this, 
I always got to make a difference between emotional decisions and rational decisions. And during the pandemic, it was a ton of rational decisions versus my emotions, right? Um, it was also very remarkable to see how the resilience of the people that, that really care about the company and how many were willing to help even if they didn't get paid during the pandemic versus all this that they'll tell you right away, you know, I'm done and I'm, and I'm walking away. So like what, you know, what were your biggest lessons with the, with the, with the talent and, and, and going through those crises and, and as you, as you fast forward now, like what were those lessons? I, I think the, the lessons were, you know, who's going to hand you an umbrella when it's raining or, or are they only going to do it when, or when, or gives you only when the sun is shining. Right. And so it's getting those people who are willing to go the extra effort, put the extra time, energy in. And you find out where people's true metal is and, and their loyalty and they're willing to adapt. I mean, to us, the pandemic was a very, very busy time. And we worked really hard uh, to make sure that when we came out of it, we were prepared. Uh, that was our, our total and focus. And I think the key to it all was keeping people in the loop and letting them realize that, that we're here for them. And it, this is far bigger than, than us. And you, you were talking about and making tough decisions where nobody knew the toughest decision was nobody knew when the pandemic was going to end. Right. So, you know, we, we had this huge call center and all these people in our New Jersey office and, and you know, month one complicates, it's going to be over next week it's going to be over the week after that. And so you kind of keep people because you were afraid that if you let everybody go and then the phone start ringing, what are you going to do? And then it was about three months into it where you kind of said, okay, well, this is sustainable. We need to, you know, to do that. Um, and there was kind of that lesson. I don't know if you were in the business, but back kind of that lesson in 9-11, where the ones who came out of the, the ones who came out of the best were the ones who I thought slashed and burned their company the quickest. I held on there and burned through a lot of money keeping people. I'm glad I did because they became very well. They were with them with me for a very long time. However, it caused tough, tough days. Now here, it was kind of a different equation. Because first of all, I was new to a lot of big chunks of the workforce, didn't know who I was, and were already nervous because here's this new order coming in and got to change things around and what's his plan is he installed it. And then you throw on top of that the pandemic. So those are some rough, rough days um, where we definitely had the downsides. We did it, you know, in phases. And it was trying to make sure we did the right people at the right time, but then eventually it was like, this is where we are. And that those are really not fun, fun days. And the people we kept, we basically said, now is, now we need you to show us. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And Robert, in 35 years, what would you say how it's been your biggest nuggets of being a leader and, and sort of attracting talent, A players, right? As we, as we may, might know, for me personally, nowadays, it's all about hiring A players and retaining A players, right? And sometimes it could be that we don't have the right infrastructure for those A players or we're not attracting the right A players. So at a high level, what has been the the best tips that you could share with, with the audience about re, you know recruiting or retaining talent? I'm gonna make it even simple. Really, really simple. I'm gonna ask you a question. I'm gonna spin it around. How often is your gut wrong? 
Mm. I would say that the older I get, the wiser I get. It helps me improves the accuracy, right? Uh, because now I have, I'll say, not on a not on a arrogant way. The work, the more that I work on myself and all these business acumen and skills, it helps me diminish the probability of that decision going wrong with talent. So I go based on my knowledge, sort of the metrics that I have in place to conduct the interviews and to make sure that we have that a player identified. Does it happen that I make the wrong choices? Yeah, and sometimes it could be the right person, but that is not a culture fit too. But to your point, how often? I'll say not that often. <laughs> Said and done. You've done this a long time. You've been successful and you meet people. And you pretty much can get a read pretty quick as to a meeting. Let's just take the chauffeur. I mean, I'll just use a very basic example. You're assuming if you're talking, they've got, you know, a clean driving record and they know how to drive a car. You need to teach them how to open doors or how to get around the city or whatever it might be. But as far as being a person, I mean, you want to spend time in that car. I bet your gut can tell you pretty quickly whether or not this is somebody I want to be part of my team. Will they fit in with my team? And we all get those vibes. And then the more I look at it, I say, you know, those vibes are usually correct in most situations when you're willing to listen to them. And that's the thing with talent where, you know, we, we've hired, you know, we hired some people that work so great. And I realized, I think back now, I was unsure about them when I interviewed them. But we kind of moved them through because we needed the person or we thought they were. But if I listened to my, what I really thought instinctually, it wouldn't have happened. Now, I can't say that I've gotten it 100% right where I may have, you know, uh, not hired somebody I should have hired, or vice versa. But I think it's looking for somebody who's the full full package and will will deliver what you want. But I think it's managing expectations on both sides. Yeah. It's saying, you know, what is it this what's gonna make you like the best at this job? What's gonna make you awesome at this job? And then hearing that answer and saying, does this intrinsically line up with what I'm already thinking and trying to do? If not, you know, I can't teach you to be nice. Yeah. I can't teach you to, to have a sense of urgency. These are things we can say we want you to be. But I think they're kind of there or there. They're not. I went to the gut, and I think that we all have our own selves. Yeah, I, I, what I'm saying is not very scientific, finding stretch imagination. But I find it's usually pretty good. And when I ask people that question, I tend to get it's usually right. <laughs> and you know what, Robert? Thank you for saying that because... I always say that the simple things in life are the ones that we don't do. You know, so it's just simple. Like everybody knows that you got to sleep well, you got to eat well, got to rest, but we don't, you know, a lot of times we, we create obstacles in there. Uh, switching a little bit of the conversation, Robert, what are the uh, biggest challenges that you're currently experiencing? Managing growth, managing people, managing growth, uh, doing it wisely. And, and um, that, I mean, that should always be a challenge. How do you manage, you know, and there's so many facets that, that you know, if you think about the, the industry we've chosen, I don't know that there are any more strikes one can get to make a business more unattractive. I mean, if you think about it, we're open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, labor intensive and asset intensive. So tell me, tell me what we're missing. <laughs> and no profit margins. Right. So, so it, it's just a beautiful business. So if you've got to manage all those things, 
and then you have good people. And I think the key is making sure your people understand and are very clear as to what the expectations are, but not of you, but of the company on the whole and our clients on the whole. And once they do that, then they can have people report to them do that. And it's constantly reminding them what, you know, where our most important thing is, you know, um, you know, I, I don't really personally, just the way I'm wired, you know, people say we have rules and regulations and policies and all that. Uh, okay, great. But do they work for the client? Do they work for the people you're driving? Do they work for the people who work for you? Because you can have all these, you say, well, that's not our policy. Well, yeah, but I'm your client. And, and, and this this, this four-day four cancellation policy doesn't work for me. I'm a corporate traveler, and I don't know in the hours of this. If you want, we can use a TNC. I call you will. But, and I will use the four-day cancellation or two-day or whatever. And so it's it's being smart and constantly thinking. I'm fortunate. Because I'm strived, I, could be, I get the chance to think. I get time to think. And I think that's very, very important so that you can manage your company uh, creatively, um, non-emotionally, and think about what, you know, a simple rule, is this good for the client or is it, is it good for the client or is it good for the people we work with? If the answer is those questions, then let's, you know, it's, it's a pretty yeah. quick yes. That's, that's well said, Robert. Uh, if I may ask, do you block time to think? I know that, um, I don't know if you, if you, uh, so I have a thing that I call thinking time that I got from uh, Key Cunningham. I'm not sure if you have listened or read his books. I block time to think, and it's freaking amazing. So I'm not sure if that's something similar that you do as well. I don't have to actually block set time. I just, you know, it's like trying to think about When I was working from home, it was like, what's the point in the office? Because I was back-to-back Zoom all day, all day, back-to-back, back-to-back. It was between the NLA, the work I do for the NLA, or, or my company is back to back. And then you come to the office and I try not, I mean, I look at my calendar, I'm like, great. I only have two meetings scheduled for tomorrow. So that means in between there, I can be thinking about things, or thinking about, uh, and I, you know, I try to set my company up so that I don't have to make any day-to-day decisions. Like not, not operationally. I mean, no, thank you. That's, that'd be a waste of my time. Totally. And, and, empowering people, and empowering your people is how you get your time to think. So that's one cool I've seen a lot of small operators, smaller businesses. And and Robert, what what were you said about? You mentioned labor shortages. How are you guys navigating these ropes? And you know what what's working and what's not working? Obviously, there's a massive need for CDL uh, chauffeurs in the market. Um, Harvard, you know, there's so, so many positions that are that are in a need to 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 fulfill. Like, how how are you guys navigating this the situations? Well, it's it's a simple answer, but you 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 can. You know, I know your your interviews are for multi industry, but I think you're, what I'm going to tell you in is I believe it's unique partnership. We've invested a lot of resources in our HR, where people don't do that. Everybody complains they don't have enough chauffeurs. And then if you say, do you have a recruiting person that's doing recruiting? Well, you don't hear that very often that if somebody just does recruiting uh, and you have a, you know, a systematized onboarding process and you have benefits that you offer, do you pay better than everybody else? Do you look out for people's well-being better than everybody else? And so I think it, it, it's these kind of things. Like you said earlier, it's retaining who you hire, assuming you hire right. And then it's making yourself an attractive place to work. And better also. 
to, to do that. Thank you. Very well said. And and moving forward into a little bit of innovation in future, what are your thoughts with flying vehicles, autonomous vehicles, um, electrical vehicles? What do you see in this industry in the next five years? Because I my assumption is that ten years is so many things are going to change in ten years. So if you if you if you were to say it in between the, the next three to five years, what do you see this industry in regards to all this different technologies coming into the market? I've seen so much change in the industry from the operators and the way people do business. I mean, that's that's like an internal thing, right? Externally, uh, I mean, just different people have gotten into the business and, and how it's matured and changed and worked. And externally, I mean, I think we're going to be naive to say that, that autonomous cars are on the way I mean, they have kinks to work out. I mean, there was, you know, a, a fatality. I read the horrible accident uh, that happened in San Francisco. I don't know if you read about it. There was a talk, there was a, a jaywalker went across the street, got hit by a car, and the autonomous car hit the person and, 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 and unfortunately dragged the person for like 20 feet. The autonomous car did because it didn't know to stop. Uh, it stopped, and, and then there was sort of, so, so, one of the autonomous car companies is no longer driving people in San Francisco. They've been put on throats. Waymo is the one who seems to be the you know well-funded Google company. And in Arizona now, you can get an autonomous vehicle through uh, Uber. Um, and I think it would be neat and, and be interesting. And would I ride in one? Sure. Now, when you start getting, you know, I, I think it will be an evolution to get to where it's fully impactful on our industry. Um, and I think that, you know, you, you're talking five to 10 years just because there's certain things they need to figure out. And I think that, you know, you think about our vehicle, our, our industry has morphed a bit where it used to be, you know, sedan, SUV stretch, maybe in like a van of some sort, something like that. And, you know, the stretch has kind of gone away a little bit and then it's minibuses and people getting the motor coaches. And so the sedan and SUPs, BPs, where people are much more into doing sedan and SUV at a much higher rate and trying to be more high touch. So if you said to me that the autonomous vehicles will be transactional based business, do I want, do I think that will we'll continue to disrupt our industry? I think conceivably, yeah. And I think, you know, everybody should have their one, one eye on it. Um, when this happens, I don't know. I mean, I think because there's plenty of cities Major metropolitan cities without too much in DC, they've got uh, circles all around the city that you've got to be able to navigate, figure out who's going and not going. And I think there will continue to be a battle, not a battle, but challenges between autonomous cars and cars that aren't autonomous, right? Uh, so I, I, and then you get further out. If you get dependent on them, you get further out, then you need more of them if you're going to depend on getting somewhere, and there's only so many. So I think. It's 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 a timeline, it, but I think you know. I mean, don't you? Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, I have interviewed a couple of guests here that uh that are private back uh, private private companies, private equity, and from venture capital, and the CEOs are telling me anywhere from five to ten years, and no one has to to have the crystal ball. Some might say three years, the other ones say ten years. It's just so so hard to really dial in what's going to happen, right? And um and switching a little bit of the subjects, uh, Robert, what's the uh, what's the best business advice you ever gotten? Jump into that one already. Um, 
don't forget autonomous vehicles in, in bad weather don't do well. <laughs> I love it. Yes. So in snow, they're not. They're not. You, you notice they haven't tested anything in in snow. Um, my best. Never mind. No, I. And back to the question. My best. I've been very, very fortunate. I've had a lot of people be positive influences on my my life. My life. Uh, from my parents, siblings, to just other people. I mean, I tend to be kind of a sponge. I like to connect with people all. I mean, I, th- I think, you know, the first and foremost, there's, there's no substitute for working hard. For working hard. There really isn't. If you're willing to put the time, energy, and effort in, then the returns are there. And that's where it's, it's amazing to me a lot of people who like this industry because they don't have to work necessarily so hard. The ones who really like this guy aren't, and I mean, you know, I'm still at my house at 7 o'clock and then I could have done it through home. Um, I think, you know, and, and the cliche is work hard, work smart. And it's both. As I, I tell my kids, you know, I said, you know, hey, it, it, if you work hard, that's one thing. And if you're super smart and you work really hard, well, then you're probably a billionaire. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. So there'll be plenty of people who are smarter than you or smarter than me, I should say, but I'm not going to let anybody outwork me. That's not happening. Not happen. Um, and, and you know, I think I think being a good person, I think integrity, and being a good person and doing the right thing by people is is really important. I mean, real simple stuff. I mean, I can you know, you, you read all you you read, you're reading business books. Oh, there's all this you know, great worldly advice, but doesn't that isn't that what it comes down to? I mean, that's why Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan got the stadium three hours before every game to warm up. Why Tiger Woods would, would, would cheat a record 10 under a round of golf and you'd find him on the, on the driving range afterward because there was one or two shots he didn't like. I mean, that's, you know, it's really, I mean, you talk about, you were asked to, we talked business books. There's a great book called Outliers. Yeah. It's about what it takes to achieve greatness. And, and, you know, there's different factors in that. And one of them is just, what are you done? I had my outliers, period. I'm not saying I'm great, but my outliers, period, when I started my business. And it was the rule of seven. I worked seven days a week, 12 hours a day for seven years, basically. And that's so, what it took for me to achieve a little extra. So, so you brought a great point, Robert, because also, I mean, a lot of, a lot of things that I, that I tell people that I, that I mentor is that success is not overnight too, right? Uh, for me, it took me 20 years and I'm still working on it. And, you know, the way that I see our mate is 35 years and, and and you guys have just been killing it, but it's also thirty five years in the making. It, it's it wasn't an overnight success, right? So there's a difference between hard work, time, and being smart too. Yeah, and I think you know, for me, it's never kind of forgetting who you are, or where you can't you came from. Um, and yeah, like when we were just at this show, and, and us, I was probably like you know one of the first. Uh, in, in, in Orlando, I found one of the first people on the show floor. I'm one of the last people off the <laughs> See every, everybody I can, and I want to go into every vehicle. And, you know, there's there's plenty of days where I, people say, yeah, you've got a lot, and you, know, you own this, and you have this. And, and I would be able to look you right in the eye and say, there's plenty of days where it's like I've done nothing. I've achieved nothing. I feel there's so much more to do. I mean, my, my job now is to create opportunity so so robert what are the best top three book recommendations that you will that you like to share with the audience 
you know, you and I spoke before the show about, you know, reading books and how important it is to constantly stretch in your brain. You know, nobody wants to operate in a vacuum in any capacity. And knowledge is power, right? So the more you have, the, the more you feel. And it makes you more well-rounded and, and makes you in, more interesting. I wish I had more time to read more books. But like I talked about earlier about The Outliers is a great book. And if you like something a little more lighter or something like I like the book Endurance. And it was about... Jack Lefford, who was an explorer, went across and got his boat stuck in the ice in, in the Antarctic and was miles and miles from land and had his crew. And, and it's a tale of how they survived against all odds. Um, and he made this great trek, trek to save his men. And it was a, a sign of how he, he led his men to safety. And it's a true story. And I, I, I prefer not fiction books. Um, it, it was a true story. And it's just a fascinating read. And actually, some sort of uh, extreme sportist or something tried to recreate Shackleford's final, you know, walk to safety, and the guy died. Uh, that's how grueling it was. So, so it's it's, a, it's an interesting, interesting book. Uh, I mean, there's a, a zillion great books. I mean, there's so many dry, straight business books you can read, and one of them we talked about was Good to Great, which is a classic book. And you know, I think anything on service. Um, and anything that, that any of the great minds, and it's interesting, you can almost see what's going on in the world by the books that are written in, you know, in the 80s, it was, you know, um, Barbarians of the Gate, and talking about the RJR, you know, takeovers of companies and all, and then kind of the books about the tech era, the Bill Gates books, and, and all those, and those were always very good, and Steve Cates wrote a very good book, which I enjoyed, um, his book was good, but there's so many, I mean, I think fine, maybe, a leader that you identify with in some way and like their product or, or like their company, then I think Horace Schultz has got a book, the old, the head of Ritz Carlton. And, and if you could read it and apply it to what you do on a daily, daily basis or on, you know, and what you do at work, all the better because I think if we keep doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different outcome and we'll be, we'll be there. That's all Totally. Thank you, Robert. And how can all the listeners uh, stay in touch with you or where can they follow you? Um, whether it's on LinkedIn, or we will put it on the on the episode notes. What is the best way to... LinkedIn is good, Facebook is good, or they can email. And it's robert.alexander at rmalimo.com. Perfect. Robert, it's been a pleasure having you in the in this, in this show. It's an honor and I look forward to interviewing you next time where you get to uh, a billion, hopefully soon. You're, you're, very, you're very kind. Uh, hopefully, if I keep my sense of urgency, I, I can do better tomorrow. <laughs> but thank you. I really appreciate being included. And I hope that we'll have another discussion uh, sometime. So. Thank you, Robert. Thanks for tuning in to the future of ground transportation. We appreciate you coming along for the ride. If you found value in this episode and want to hear more, please make sure to subscribe to the show.